This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Ohio versus the world, an American history podcast. Subscribe and follow the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to join the conversation on Facebook or at our website, OhioVTheWorldPodcast.com. Ohio versus the world is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Go to EvergreenPodcast.com for all our past episodes. Now here's your host, Alex Hasty. everybody it's episode eight ohio versus revolution today we're going to be talking about the cuban revolution the rise of fidel castro and the role an ohioan william morgan from toledo played in that classic cold war moment the cuban revolution we'll talk with our three guests about the crazy story of billy morgan from toledo uh, billy was a relative nobody joe sixpack who would spend time in jail was a, on the circus he was a fire eater in the circus did you know jobs for the mob in, in Toledo and in Miami, and how he would find himself at the forefront of the Cuban Revolution, fighting on the same side as Fidel Castro. We had no idea about the story of William Alexander Morgan, uh, and now we've become so fascinated with it. It's actually going to be a two-part episode, and this is part one of Ohio vs. Revolution. Uh, again, Ohio v. the World is brought to you by Evergreen Podcast. We're on the Evergreen Podcast Network. You can go to evergreenpodcast.com, check out all our past episodes. They have a history channel with other great shows. Our friends Whiskey Business have joined the network. Uh, they're a great show with Dino Tripodis. And again, go check us out at evergreenpodcast.com. And as I've talked about before, I grew up you know, in the Cold War in the 80s. My brother and I, on long trips, I remember a particular long drive to Key West, Florida for a vacation when I was like six or seven. And we would, in the back seat, we would wrestle and fight, and we played a game that we called Cuban-American, where one guy would be a Cuban fighter and the other one American. Uh, maybe the most Cold War kids game of all time. But Cuba's been in the news recently, the protests uh, over government incompetence and, and poverty and COVID and, and really anti-communist uh, protests. So, and here's hoping that they can get the freedom that they deserve, the democracy that all Cubans have been searching for for over 100 years. And we'll talk about Cuban history today from the Spanish-American War in 1898 and all the American interference in Cuba's policies and Cuban, Cuban life and up until the revolution in 1959. That brought us Fidel Castro and the communist rule in Cuba and really set this diametrically opposed relationship between the United States and an island nation that's 90 miles off the coast of Florida. It's important to understand that during the Cuban Revolution, Amer many Americans were rooting for Castro. He was not a communist revolution. In fact, it was a democratic nationalist revolution. We'll talk in the second episode about how that changes and how Cuba becomes a communist nation. Our three guests today will join us to talk about that improbable victory for the revolutionaries in Cuba. We'll talk about the life and times of William Morgan of Toledo, Ohio, and his role in the Cuban Revolution. Such an interesting story, so much so that we're going to do a two-part episode. You're listening to part one here. It's episode eight, Ohio vs. Revolution. William Morgan of 
Toledo, Ohio in the Cuban Revolution. His story was actually picked up. It was optioned by a studio in, in Hollywood. Adam Driver signing on to play the title role of William Morgan. A director's been picked. George Clooney's associated with it in some way. We'll see if it actually gets made here in the next year or two. A lot of, a lot of things get optioned and, and never get made. But this story is tailor-made for a Hollywood blockbuster. You can just read our guest, our first guest, Michael Sala. He's an investigative editor at the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette and used to work uh, as an editor with the Toledo Blade. And that's how he got involved in the story with Ms. with Morgan coming from Toledo, the glass city. Mike's book from 2015, The Yankee Commandante, the untold story of courage, passion, and one American's fight to liberate Cuba, you could just use that as a screenplay. You could just pull whatever you want out of that, and you would have a, an absolutely killer killer movie. Our first guest, Michael Sala, who's done such great work for, for decades, when, especially when he's at the Toledo Blade, Miami Herald, and now the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. But he's won awards, you know, Pulitzer Prize for their investigative story, and then book Tiger Force about Vietnam. And still to this day, Michael says this story, this story of William Morgan, is the most interesting story. We asked him why. I have been involved in some really high-profile projects over the years, and they run the gamut from international to even local. The William Morgan story, it's by far the most powerful story I think I've ever worked on. The reason being, think about it, you know, this is Cold War, Cuba, the Missile Crisis, all these powerful events converging in one place. And here's this guy from Toledo in the middle of it, the mob, Fidel Castro, Che Guevara, J. Edgar Hoover, and William Morgan is an integral part of this narrative and plays a very important role in these events that are playing out. And then you have Olga, the love of his life, also in the middle. The violence, the revolution, the politics of that era, you mix all those in one bag and it's, it's just a, an amazing story. Our second guest is Juan Santa Marina, history professor at the University of Dayton, uh, an expert on all things Cuba and Latin American. Juan was actually born in Cuba, lived there for almost the first decade of his life, and his parents were involved, uh, as all Cubans really were, in, in the revolution, siding with Castro at the beginning only to be disillusioned and then leave, emigrate uh, ultimately to America in the 70s. We talk with Juan about his family's journey during the revolution. I was born in Cuba, 1967, emigrated to the U.S. in 1975 when I was eight, turning nine. My parents are doing graduate work in Cuba in the 1950s, very much against the Batista government and very much in favor of the revolution in the late 50s, the kind of ideals of democracy and end to corruption, et cetera. When Fidel Castro's power begins in, in 1959, they are initially part of that revolution, part of the, the group of people that favor the ousting of previous dictator and with hope towards something better. You know, at that point, my parents are probably about 30, beginning to, to kind of, you know, have a life and have children. And so they begin to kind of fall aside from, from that initial uh, optimism through the early 1960s. And kind of gets complicated from there, but ultimately decide to leave by the late 60s and finally do so in, in 73. The United States becomes involved in Cuban politics in 1898 when we declare war against Spain. Cuba was fighting a revolution against the Spanish Empire. The United States comes in and ultimately does kick Spain out of the Caribbean 
and out of their, their holdings in Asia. You can learn more about the Spanish-American War by going back and listening to our episode, another two-parter we did last year on William McKinley. Uh, so during his presidency that the United States went to war in Cuba. Shortly before McKinley's assassination in 1901, the U.S. Congress passed what was called the Platt Amendment, an amendment to an Army Appropriations Bill that basically set the conditions for the United States' withdrawal from Cuba. And it also basically allowed the United States to interfere in Cuban affairs if order broke down within the, within the country. We could send in troops. We made them write it into their own constitution, their own sovereign nation that the United States is allowed legally to enter with troops if there's any issues with order. And we did that multiple times. We talked with Juan Santa Marina about the Platt Amendment and American interference in Cuban politics. Well, one of the things that happens as a result of U.S. entry into the Spanish-American War of, of 1898, or you know, Cuban historians would refer to it as the Cuban Revolutionary War, of which the Spanish-American segment is, is only a piece of it. But Let's, let's kind of say, okay, the Spanish-American War in spring to summer of, of 1898, and then it's concluded in a piece in December of 1898. One of the elements that, that happens afterwards is a U.S. military occupation of Cuba under General Leonard Wood. Part of, of the American perspective in, in Cuba was, okay, now what, what do we do from here? It is the first time the U.S. has occupied a, a foreign territory, essentially. The U.S. Uh, Senate in particular tries to figure out, or the U.S. Congress tries to figure out is, well, uh, going forward, can we create something there in a particular way? Uh, and ultimately, the Platt Amendment is, which is an amendment to the Appropriations Bill, the kind of centerpiece, which the U.S. gives itself the right to and responsibility to intervene in, in Cuba um, as it sees fit. And it also uh, demands that sort of piece of sovereignty be included, or that piece of, of, of American interest be included in the U.S. in the Cuban constitution takes effect in 1902, giving the U.S. a certain amount of, of right and responsibility to intervene in, in Cuba. So, you know, kind of a limited sovereignty in a sense is what uh, the result of, of the Platt Amendment and, and the Cuban constitution is of 1902. The Platt Amendment, um, you know, is, is used over the course of the years, especially if you look at, you know, the time period between, let's say, 1902 and, and 1933, the election of Roosevelt and the beginning of a good neighbor policy. The U.S. does intervene in Cuba in 1906, it does in 1912, it does, again, you know, 33 to 35, roughly in a number of smaller moments here and there. And certainly politically, it, it, it is involved in many ways over the course of, of those decades. And we'll be telling the story of the Cuban Revolution and, and going back and forth between that story and the story of William Morgan. William Morgan, born in 1928 in Cleveland, moves to Toledo at age one, where he's raised. Uh, we talk with our guest, Michael Sala, about just an absolute wild child, a very unlikely revolutionary in Billy Morgan born into a well-to-do family. His father was an engineer. The mother, they were devout Catholics. They lived in the Old West End, which is a very upscale area, then was considered the upscale area of Toledo. They lived in a very beautiful home. They were members of Cathedral Parish. He kept getting booted out of schools. He went to Central Catholic High School, got shown the door there, ended up, I believe, he went to Maycumber for a while, which is a vocational high school. He was always getting in fights. He ended up getting arrested at 15 for an armed robbery. This kind of upscale, educated family, 
and they're raising this kid who's basically a hoodlum. And, and you have to understand something, just to back up here for a second. Most of the neighbors around there, all those kids were going to Ivy League schools by the time he was getting, you know, thrown out of these other schools. William just couldn't make it. He was very infatuated with Army stuff and always loved Army movies. And he would dress up in these, uh, he would wear these parachutes and jump from the rooftops of these mansions in the old West End. You know, and I believe he hurt his back at one point and, and damn near killed himself. And uh, the mother just didn't know what to do with him. I mean, the mother and father just didn't. They were beside themselves. He kept running away from home. At one point, he joined the circus and the father had to go to Chicago, pull him back. So instability and disruption and school problems and getting scra and scraps with the law were a big part of his life. So at 18, he calls his mother and he says, hey, I'm, I've joined the army. It was a never ending, you know, what's next with this guy? William Morgan joins the U.S. Army, goes to Japan. He meets a girl, Japanese girl, falls in love and leaves the army. He goes to AWOL, gets himself arrested. It's not the first time William Morgan was in trouble and it surely wouldn't be the last. Michael tells us about his short-lived stint in the army and how he gets involved with the Toledo mob. After he joins the army, he, he goes AWOL. He's thrown in prison. He overpowered a guard. Also took the guards, made the guards strip and, and wore the guards uniform and then left and was later arrested. This was in Japan when he was with the occupied forces post-World War II. He ends up getting into prison and he's put in prison for at least three years. When he got out, it was difficult. He couldn't find a job. He went back and lived at home for a while. That wasn't working out. And he eventually becomes, starts running errands for the mob. Toledo had a very developed, organized crime network here, and he started to uh, be a debt collector. There was a lot of gambling clubs in Toledo at the time, and he was used as a lookout person and also to run errands and also to collect debts and got him with the wrong crowd here. This was always a satellite of Detroit's La Casa Nostra. So he also had a lot of ventures up in Detroit. And he earned the nickname Two-Gun Morgan because he would often carry two guns. He would wear the white seersucker suits. And he got to know a lot of organized crime figures from across the country, uh, you know, including members of the New Jersey and New York mob as well. Speaking of the mob, the American Mafia gets very heavily involved in Havana and in Cuba. Men like Meyer Lansky uh, set up operations, casinos. If you watch Godfather 2, there's some great scenes down in Havana actually during the revolution. Cuba became America's playground in the first half of the 20th century. Many Americans vacationing down there, especially even during Prohibition. There was no, no Prohibition in Cuba. Uh, it was a place you could go to have a blast. As a middle-class man of leisure, I've always been interested in the history of vacation and leisure here in, in America. One of the most exciting places to vacation was Cuba. We talk with Juan Santamarino, history professor from the University of Dayton. He gives us a little history lesson on vacation. So one of the interesting things about uh, Cuban history also in terms of its uh, beginning as a sovereign nation in 1902 through, let's say, you know, this time period of an ending in, in, in late 1950s, is that Cuba emerges as a sovereign nation at the same time that 
there is a lot of change taking place within the United States in terms of the development of wealth and income, um, disposable income, the rise in, in wealth of, of a middle class, the rise of tourism and of a broader kind of vast market tourism. And we're still on, you know, infancy stages in 1900. And it but it's, it's certainly taking off. It's certainly beginning uh, pretty dramatically. So in terms of Cuba as a, as a playground for Americans, as a tourist destination, tourism is, is beginning to expand and actually you know, become an industry in and of itself. At the same time that Cuba is a, a now a sovereign nation, you know, very much within the realm of the United States, easy ferry service from Florida to Cuba, rail service along Flagler's, you know, East Coast Railway. You know, we take tourism, we take vacations today as kind of for granted and everybody does something. Vacation and, and leisure time activity like that is a pretty novel thing. It, it was the domain of the wealthy in the 19th century. It's becoming more of a, a middle class thing in the 20th century. And so the rise of Cuba as a playland is, is part of of you know what also was happening in the United States that the, the two histories are kind of inseparable in this respect as in in most other respects you know I always make a, a kind of an argument that the the best thing that happened to Caribbean and Mexican tourism is the Cuban Revolution of 1959 and the you know taking out of, of Cuba as a destination for Americans. Really, Puerto Rico, the Virgin Islands, Caribbean tourism in general, and, and certainly even Mexican tourism in general, uh, all is sort of you know taking off really as a direct result of the loss of Cuba to American tourists uh, for the most part in you know beginning of the 60s. If there's a villain in the first part of this story, it's Fulgencio Batista, who's a Cuban president, came from the army, uh, also came from kind of humble beginnings, uh, became president in 1940, served for four years, moved to America, and came back to run for president again in 1952. It was a three-way race, and he was a distant third when the former army colonel stages a coup and takes power in Cuba in 1952. We talk with Juan Santa Marina about the repressive regime of Cuban strongman Fulgencio Batista. Fulgencio Batista is, yeah, is, a, is a very interesting part of Cuban history. One of the interesting things about Cuba is it is politically unstable for a good chunk of its history. That's you know, it's 60 years as a sovereign nation. There are moments of actual democracy, of fair elections, of stability, but ultimately then as now, moments of, of great instability and chaos and economic problems evolve into a chaotic situation. Currently, that's the case, and, and that's more democratic and in, in, in economic than anything else, but, but certainly that's the case, you know, post-World War II, and then the rise of, of Batista. He is coming from the, you know, sort of the enlisted core races part of it in terms of, of his origins as not white, but a, a Cuban mulatto. So there's, there's race, there's class, there's a whole variety of things with regard to, to him and, and his rise in, in power, and also his ability to control the military. When Batista retakes power in 1952, he's a different leader, and he's much more repressive. His secret police are killing and, and torturing citizens uh, who speak out. One of those people was Fidel Castro. He was born on the eastern side of the island, uh, becomes a young lawyer, spends time in America, uh, and goes to some pretty good schools. But Castro was, was running for parliament in 1952 when those elections were canceled. 
Batista gets in tight with America. He welcomes the mafia. He opens a bunch of casinos, encouraging gambling and all kinds of debauchery and a lot of corruption. He's stealing from the Cuban government, enriching himself and his friends. And it's 1953 when Fidel Castro leads a failed attack on the Moncada barracks in Cuba. His forces are routed. They're rounded up. He's put on trial. He's put in jail and ultimately gets exiled to Mexico. Him and his younger brother, Raul. We talk with Juan Santa Marina about President Batista. You can make an argument that there are moments during his time in power where things are actually fairly stable and maybe even somewhat democratic. And that certainly after 1956 uh, is, is no longer the case. But of course, you know, he's at the center of Fidel Castro's attack on the Moncada barracks. And then what results afterwards, the massacre of those that, that uh, attacked it, and ultimately the trial and jailing and ultimately exile of, of Fidel Castro. Our third guest is the Australian writer, Tony Perrottet. Tony works at Smithsonian Magazine, and he's the author of the excellent book, Cuba Libre, Shea Fidel and the Improbable Revolution that Changed World History, published in 2019. A really fun read. Tony's an, was an awesome interview, super fun guy. I interviewed him. Uh, he was in his home in New York. You can hear some, some of that New York traffic and honking horns in the background. Uh, but really fun to talk with him. And go pick up Cuba Libre. There's a link in the show notes to go do that. But we talk with Tony about the beginning of the Cuban Revolution. Exiled in Mexico, Fidel Castro, an Argentinian doctor named Che Guevara and his brother Raul lead a boat trip on what's called the Grandma Landing. That was the name of the ship. In 1956, the goal of this invasion is to lead a revolution in Cuba, overthrow Batista, and take power. Unfortunately, there's only about 82 men. It's poorly organized, and it turns into a disaster as the military finds them and begins routing their soldiers. Castro's landing in 1956 is really the start of this improbable, what Tony calls the DIY revolution. Kind of amazing. Um, you know, this is why I call it the, you know, the do-it-yourself revolution. And I found this as if, you know, you sent some PhD grads from Princeton and dropped them in the, you know, the Appalachian Mountains and said, like, start a revolution, see how you go. And, you know, they're sort of figuring it out, you know, it's like, you know, and, and it was very, very badly planned. I mean, they came from Mexico and it had to, they, they sort of rushed it because uh, the Mexican police were sort of onto them and whatever. And uh, so they just all piled in and uh, leaving from this small, small port. It's not an invasion craft. It's a pleasure yacht that, they, that Fidel got a hold of. And like, so everyone piles in, they got like 82 guys squeezed in and like with, and they happen to leave in the, sort of basically in the middle of a storm. So they all get seasick. You know, there's like vomit everywhere. Che, who's the doc, the doctor, somehow managed to forget the, um, you know, the seasickness tablets, you know, so it's a, it's a mess and it goes on for days and they don't even know exactly where they are and they're running out of petrol. And they, 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 they had one idea of a, it would have been a kind of a reasonable place to land. The weather was so bad and the winds and whatever. So they basically crash land in a swamp. And instead of, you know, instead of on a beach and so they're like plowing through this swamp and they're losing stuff and like they're getting their shoes stuck in the mud you know and it's just like a complete fiasco and then they get there and then of course they very quickly you know discovered they hear uh, boats bombing and you know blasting the, the boat so they realize they've been discovered so they head off and it's, and it's a schlep through somewhat exposed country and then the, the army knows exactly where they are and then they've am the army ambushes them and they're all running off you know in in, in every which way and you know all, and mostly either captured or killed or whatever or hunted down and a, a dozen or so uh, arrive you know to the at the meeting point up in the mountains i mean i think the fascinating thing is that fidel never gave up 
you know, he'd be sort of like, even in, when he was hiding out in the corn, in the cane fields for three, three days. You yeah, know, he's like under some like leaves for like three or four days, right? Yeah, and he's sitting there muttering to himself, you know, a victory is near, we will, we will triumph. And like these two guys have crawled over to him, you know, and they're all there and they're looking at each other going like, Fidel's kind of lost it. So it's, you know, he's, he's just, he's crazy. He would just be like, totally optimistic, completely convinced that this was all going to work. Army of like 50,000 trained troops, you know, with air force and battleships and the whole bit. And they're like a dozen guys up in the, up in the mountains. And, and yeah, and the fascinating thing is that within like a couple of years, they do manage it, you know, which is, you know, it, it's, it's just an extraordinary story. Tony spent so much time in Cuba and throughout Latin America in his career, but writing this book, Cuba Libre, so many great little stories. We'll try and share some of them with you today. But one of them's on this invasion trip, this boat trip. It's ill-fated. They have a man go overboard, maybe their most experienced sailor. And it really gives, provides an insight into why so many guerrillas wanted to fight for Fidel. Because he seemed to care for them. He knew them. He wanted to talk to them. And really, no man was left behind. Very evident in this story about the man overboard on that first trip to try and liberate Cuba. They could have just gone, oh, God, we've, we've lost him. But he, Fidel just kept going round and round, wasting the petrol, you know. But his, his thing was like, you know, you always look after your guys. You're always like, you know, the whole group has, you know, has to look after each individual. And I think when he was up in the mountains, there was the same sort of thing that, um, you know, every, everyone who was in Fidel's army had this sort of connection with with fidel he was able he would talk to them you know about every little detail and he'd find all about their lives and you know explain you know all the subtleties and uh, and they knew that you know even if it meant some large screw up you know it, the, each individual was really important Michael Sala tells us his life is not going well. His marriage is on the rocks. He's moved back in with his parents in Toledo. We talk with Michael Sala, the author of the excellent book Yankee Comandante. There's a link in the show notes to buy it, uh, the story of William Morgan. Uh, We talk to him about how he leaves Toledo the day after Christmas in 1957 to go to Miami and ultimately to go to the Cuban Revolution. While he's there, he works as a bouncer at a very famous nightclub down there called the Bowery. He starts to, knowing William Morgan, Billy Morgan, he starts to cavort with members of organized crime. And eventually, he's used several times to deliver guns to these boats that were waiting to go to Cuba. It was during the beginning of the revolution. It was while Castro was trying to raise money coming to the United States to essentially launch an insurrection. He starts to learn the networking that exists down there. Guns are a big deal because back then they were all government surplus post-World War II. So there's delivering these guns to these boats in Biscayne Bay and down in the Keys and other places. And then those boats are taking off to Cuba to deliver them to the Sierra Maestra, the mountains there where Castro was forming his army. The July 26th movement, they called it. Married at this point. He joined the circus. This is another crazy part of his life. For a while, he was the uh, he was the fire eater. And he met the woman who was the snake charmer. And, the, and they got married. Her name was Teresa. They ended up coming back to Toledo because they were fighting so much down in Miami. And while he was in Toledo, he eventually leaves. It's Christmas. He's getting calls from people down in Miami. And he eventually goes back to Miami, he leaves, goes back to Miami, 
he starts networking with members of the July 26th movement who are in Miami raising money and arms for the revolution. And he talks himself into being accepted into one of their units. First films of Cuban rebel leader Fidel Castro and his ragged force in their mountain stronghold, made shortly before fighting erupted in all six of Cuba's provinces. This is the band that for 16 months has held out in the rugged Sierra Maestre mountains near the island's eastern tip. Ill-supplied, they make many of their weapons in crude jungle workshop. Castro himself has become a figure of legend in the 16 months since he invaded Oriente province from a small boat. But by mere existence and survival, Castro's force has both grown and exerted an influence out of all proportion to its size. Castro's plan of action? To fight by any means until the Batista regime is toppled. Despite losses, they have fought on and their numbers grow. Today, an estimated one man in ten carries a modern rifle. The United States has embargoed arms for both sides. Occasional shipments are smuggled through from rebel sympathizers. It is an unequal battle of idealists against tough professional forces. As Castro, if I lose, I'll start over again. If Batista loses, he loses for good. Batista seemed upset about reports in the American press of police brutality and corruption, but confident in the face of an unpredictable future. You hear that newsreel clip of Fidel Castro and his July 26th movement. That was the date of the Moncada barracks failed attack in 1953. We talk with author Tony Perte about just how Castro was doing it. They had just a couple dozen guys up in the mountains in the eastern part of Cuba. And slowly it grows and grows and they keep winning small victories suffer defeats, small victories. But Castro's revolution begins to take hold across the island. Tony Perte talks to us about guerrilla warfare in Cuba. Well, all the people who lived up in the Sierra Maestro were like felt abandoned by the system. You know, they like were completely forgotten. So it was very fertile ground for Fidel. He's able to uh, uh, get this amazing support. And they're the ones who are able to tell him where the army is, where he helps them, helps them hide, gives them food. So with this sort of local support, he's able to disappear into the jungle, you know, and he never like does any pitched battles. He chooses where to attack and it's a surprise attack and then melting away, you know, so there's bombs being pounded down into the jungle, but nothing, you know, they do nothing, you know, so uh, Fidel's able to like melt away and then turn up, you know, makes it seem like there's a lot more of the guerrillas than there are and he hits the weak points you know he actually thought it was, would take years you know to really wear you know wake wear them down but it's um happened much more quickly where fidel castro really is winning the war is in the hearts and minds of cubans and he begins to break down the morale of batista's cuban army it's 40 some thousand trained troops he's got an air force and navy and still they cannot eradicate these rebels up in the mountains they're being protected by the citizens they're getting weapons smuggled to them and they're basically staying alive and by staying alive, they're growing stronger, even though, again, they're not a huge force. Tony Perte talks to us about how Castro and his men began to break down the Cuban army. If a guerrilla got caught, you know, they'd, they'd be executed, tortured and executed. Uh, but Fidel made it a, a point of honor that he would sort of like treat anyone who, any military, of, military officer who, who surrendered, any soldier, treat them really well and then release them. And then he would, whoever was released was, would be like, hey, these guerrillas, you know, I was terrified, but they, you know, they gave me food, they medical care, and like, and here I am again. And the word would go out that if you, you know, surrendered, you'd be okay. And in the sort of key moments, you know, who wants to die for this weird dictator, you know, is like, you know, who obviously has been pillaging the country, you know, you know, why die? 
for this guy who, does, who obviously doesn't give two hoots for us. So it became easier for them to like throw down their weapons and surrender, then go back. And the more, and the more it happened, the more the army was like, oh, what are we fighting for? You know, it's kind of uh, these young guys often, you know, like treated really, you know, cruelly in the, in the military. And, um, you know, they're conscripted and they're like, what, you know, what are we doing here? The army sort of implodes in a way. It's like, you know, uh, and like small groups of guerrillas are able to really, you know, defeat large numbers of soldiers. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. In early 1958, William Morgan arrives in Havana. He's intent on joining Castro's army up in the Sierra Maestra Mountains, but he's detoured. And he actually joins something called the Second Front. Another front not associated with Castro has started their own guerrilla war in the Escombrae Mountains. We talk with Michael Sala about just how William Morgan ends up fighting with the Second Front in Cuba. Boarded a plane with some of these uh, revolutionaries. Some of them are much younger than him. He's like 28 years old at this point. Instead of being embedded in the July 26th movement army with Castro, he's becomes a part of the another army that's fighting in the Escombray Mountains. Now, these two groups didn't necessarily get along. This was called the Second Front. He actually ran into one of the Cuban revolutionaries. He had met him in the Bowery in Miami a couple years earlier when this guy was in the early stages of raising money and arms. He ran into him in Havana and when and just by chance, and he told William, you can't go there. You have to go to the Second Front I know those people and I know who you can trust there. So he delivers William to the mountains. That didn't mean William was accepted though. Once he arrives in the mountains, they see this kind of kind of pudgy, overweight, gringo. And they're going to say, and so they said, okay, if you're going to be with us, we're going to work you. They both said to themselves, he's not going to last with us. Manoel, El Eloy Gutierrez Manoel was the leader of the second front. And he said, look, we'll let you train with us. But in the, on the side, he's telling the other, the other Barbudos, who are the bearded ones, the other members of the unit, the rebels, this guy's not going to last. And they ran him up and down these hills. And, and, and there's a, a little bug there that gets in. Unless you're immune to it, it'll get spots all over your body. And William Morgan is covered with this. He is frustrated. He has done days after days, but he is not giving up. He will not relent. You know why? He had nowhere else to go. He had reached a point in his life. He had burned every bridge. He had left his family. He had left the military and been in disrepute. He had left everything. There was nothing left for him. So he was at that point where he says, I don't have anywhere else to go. But when they pushed him to a certain point, there was a very famous line when he screams out in very broken Spanish, I am not a mule. Yeah. <laughs> and eventually they realize, okay, this guy's with us. He's not going to leave us. He's going to be a part of us. Let's let him join. And they accept him into the second front. I still find it amazing that Morgan gets accepted into the guerrilla army. 
this kind of pudgy Ohioan, very pale, but he does have some army experience, and he's actually a natural soldier. He's really good at knife throwing. Uh, He's a pretty good shot, as Mike tells us. He doesn't really speak Spanish at all. Uh, In the very first attack, his leader, uh, Manoyo, tells him, you don't shoot, but he doesn't, there's lost in translation. And they're watching an army patrol pass through. They're outnumbered, and Morgan opens fire. They kill a couple guys. There's a battle that none of them intended to have, and Manoyo's furious, saying, I told you to not shoot. He's like, I don't speak Spanish. But from that first misstep, Morgan shows true courage in battle. We talk with Michael Sala, the author of Yankee Comandante, about William Morgan, the soldier. Um, They were not as heavily trained. A lot of these were kids carrying, you know, old shotguns and pistols and knives, but they were determined. They had a heart. What William Morgan brought to the table was a warrior. He would not retreat in battle. He was a pretty good shot, by the way. He was able to show them that he truly was army trained and that didn't help him. He told them that if they followed him, he could help them. During several of these battles, he just refused to retreat. They used to think he would, they used to call him gringo, it's muy loco. He would prevail. Invariably, the troops under Batista would retreat, and Morgan would never retreat. That was the one thing that got him. This crazy gringo with now he's he's a beard as well, and he's relentlessly going up and down hills, firing at the enemy. He ended up leading his own unit. He became a comandante, and he started winning major battles because eventually they clear out much of the military resistance there. So that when Che Guevara makes his great westward push into Santa Clara to win the revolution, Morgan is an integral part of that success. Doesn't get a lot of the credit for it. Never did because Castro ended up not honoring the exploits and successes of the Second Front. But Morgan becomes this hero, heroic figure. William Morgan undergoes a transformation in the jungles and mountains of Cuba. Like he said, he becomes a comandante. He's leading his own unit. And they're winning victories. The New York Times does a story on him. He becomes somewhat famous back here in the States. Mike was able to uncover some of these letters that that Morgan wrote to his family. And they really indicate just how much he did change. Mike Sala talks to us about how William Morgan goes from a screw-up, a petty criminal in the United States, to a full-blown leader of the Cuban Revolution. He changes at one point. There's a point in time... He writes this letter to his mother, and much of what we have, much of what we based our, we, we were able to get a lot of his, some of his key letters that he wrote to his mother and to Olga. The New York Times tracked him down when he was in the mountains and ended up doing an interview with him in the Second Front. But with Morgan, he had witnessed some of the atrocities that were carried out against the campesinos you know, and the farmers and by Batista's soldiers. At one point, they had to only watch because there were so many army personnel in this village as they, as the army members cut out the tongue of an elderly, senile man who wouldn't give up the location of the rebels. And they ended up like putting a noose around this man's neck and then dragging him by the noose on the back of a truck through the village around just to let the people know this is what happens to people that don't work with us. And Morgan witnessed all this, finally hit him. You know what? This isn't about me. This isn't about any sense of adventure. This is serious stuff. This is about them. This is about the other. These are the people that that we're fighting for. 
And he writes this very heartfelt letter to his mother, finally, uh, because don't forget, he leaves. And it was the one person in his life that always was there at his side, always backed. And he basically says, look, I know you think that I'm a screw up and dad thinks this is all a big pipe dream, but I can tell you I'm doing this for other people. I'm doing this to help them win their freedom, you know, and that, that this is important to them. And I want to be there for them, mom. I'm not the bomb you think I am. I'm not this, I've changed. And then it's about that time that he meets Olga. out that Batista is said to have murdered like 20,000 Cubans during his second reign, his reign of terror from 1952 to 1958. Well, Morgan's up in the mountains. He meets a woman, Olga Rodriguez. She's a student leader. She's a rebel herself. Her friends are being rounded up. They're being killed. They're being tortured. She knows she's next and she has to flee. And she flees to the Escombray Mountains and to Morgan's second front. And they take her in. Mike has met Olga. He interviewed her. Uh, she's just a fascinating person. We'll talk more about her as these episodes go on. Michael tells us about the unlikely love story between the young and beautiful Olga Rodriguez and the American Comandante, William Morgan. Olga was a student leader who was leading insurrections in Santa Clara as a student protester. And now Batista's soldiers were after her. She had to flee the mountains. And so they, they help her get out on horseback and she ends up in the rebel camp in the Escambray Mountains. And she is the first woman to arrive and to earn the protection of the Second Front. And she became kind of a nurse to the men that were getting injured, and, and some of them would, would die in her arms. Um, that was Olga. That was the person that she was. She gave was giving her life as well to the cause. And there she meets William Morgan. And it was love at first sight. There's this beautiful, dark-haired Cuban woman Olga Rodriguez, she's 22, and then there's William Morgan, this, this jut-jawed, now slimmed down, um, rugged, ruggedly handsome features, and um, they fall in love. And so now Morgan has found his cause, and he has found his love in the mountains of Cuba. Olga and Billy Morgan would actually be married in the mountains during the war. Women played a huge role in the revolution. Whether it was fundraising, smuggling weapons, women like Olga actually, you know, doing some of the fighting. And Cuba has a very macho culture, especially in the 1950s, and women were able to operate underneath the radar. We talked with Tony Perte about the role of women, women like Celia Sanchez, who was Fidel Castro's lover and, and really most important assistant. Celia Sanchez, I mean, she was a doctor's daughter. And, but there was a lot of, you know, there's a very widespread resistance to the dictator, Batista, and, uh, you know, and it infiltrated all levels of society. And, uh, uh, and women, you know, in the 50s are sort of coming up, they're still, you know, somebody going to college, they just wanted to be helpful. They just wanted to be really useful. And, uh, you know, and Celia was just super smart and a great organiser. So, you know, she was initially in a fairly low position, but then people, Fidel realised that she was able, actually able to organise, you know, because the guys had a lot of inspiration, you know, a lot of energy, but they often were, you know, not, not very well organised. So she was able to supply them, you know, get them guns, get them all this sort of stuff. And all across uh, Cuba, women became more and more important because they, um, police didn't always take them seriously. So they would do things like they would smuggle guns in, in sort of dresses, sort of voluminous dresses, and the police 
you know, wouldn't even, wouldn't even occur to them to, you know, um, say, lift your dress and whatever. This is like for the first year. Eventually, the police figure it out and women are arrested and, you know, some tortured to death and whatever. It's, uh... But they became, you know, like there was a whole women's brigade that sort of joined because they wanted to actually fight in the front lines. So that was first, you know, decades before women were allowed in the, you know, the U.S. Army. One of the most popular figures of the Cuban Revolution was the young Argentinian doctor Ernesto Che Guevara. Guevara fighting with Castro for all those years after the Grandma landing. He makes his way from the Sierra Maestra Mountains on the eastern side to the Escambray Mountains, where William Morgan and his men have been fighting. Michael Sala tells us about Che Guevara and his men coming west as the two revolutionary armies are joined. Che arrives in October of that year of the fighting, but it's 1958. He says, okay, you know, this is our year we're fighting and we're on the same cause where I'm going to take over your unit. Well, I can tell you that did not go over well. These guys were fighting their own fight. They had philosophical differences with the second front, uh, the second front of the July 26th movement with Castro's people. Castro's people were infiltrated by, there were communists, communistas in that unit. And these guys were not. These were all democratic fighters. Mostly it was turf. Like, look, we're going to respect you. You're going to respect us. We're not going to go to the Sierra Maestra and ask you to give up your unit for us. Why would you come here and ask for us? We're giving our life. We've spilled our blood. Our blood is as important as yours. And so they clashed. And there were, there were uh, Che Guevara and Morgan did not get along, nor did Eloy Gutierrez Manoyo, the leader of the Second Front, and Che Guevara. So they ended up like pushing Che out and say, look, we'll fight with you, alongside you. You are not coming into our territory. They made it very clear. And that was it. They ended up signing a pact that they would get along. They would fight together. You know, whatever they needed to do to end the revolution, they would do it together. But it was not. The bad blood was already in. It was already there by then. As the revolution continues to gather steam, the government of Batista is in serious jeopardy. At the same time as Che Guevara and his men take the important city of Santa Clara, Morgan's involved in that fighting. Morgan himself captures another important city. William Morgan leads a raid on the city of Sinfuegos, Cuba. Sinfuegos now a city of 150,000, and the city is liberated by Morgan and his men. We hear an interview that was done for American television with Billy Morgan and his new wife, Olga Rodriguez. You say a moment ago that you're going to feed the entire city of San Fuegos. Uh, what's the story on that? Well, we're feeding the entire city of San Fuegos. There isn't any food supplies. They're just starting to move because of the general strike and because of the bad condition of the roads after we blew up the bridges. Bill, you've only been married for about a month now. Uh, how did you happen to meet your wife? Well, she came up to the mountains running with the uh, secret police behind her. Uh, she was working in the revolutionary movement and put in a, put a couple of bombs down in the city and the secret police wanted to take off her head. So she came up here and worked as my secretary. And then from there, why, we got married. his victories in Fuegos, Che Guevara, and Santa Clara, Cuban army begins to melt away. I feel like when I read Tony's book, Cuba Libre, and when I study the Cuban Revolution, it happens fast. We talked to Tony Perte about how the Cuban army basically quits. 
I think they'd really lost um, faith in everything by that stage. They really, you know, you know, the, and like Che was like zooming through the country and just like, you know, taking Santa Clara and just like, it seemed like they were sort of invincible. Uh, you know, there was some who were trying to sort of keep it together. Some of the guerrillas were kind of laughing because they, they just like go into, they, they were just like Che and like a hundred guys went into um, Havana and took control of the of, of La Cabana, the, the major fort, and like 5,000 soldiers just like surrender. They don't want to fight anymore. I, it's often said, there's, there's, you know, people try to study guerrilla uh, warfare, and they, it's, not, it's not that the guerrillas win militarily, but they create the conditions for collapse. The Cuban government and the Cuban military just like gave up. They just didn't want to fight anymore. You know, it's like, you know, they, you know, by any logical, you know, algorithm, they should have like, you know, beaten them in, in days, but they just didn't want it. They just didn't have the, the urge. They knew that all the Cuban people were behind the, the guerrillas. They just like, they didn't want to be like oppressing their own people any longer. On New Year's Eve, 1958, everything changes. Fulgencio Batista, the unelected dictator of Cuba, comes to a party, a party he'd hold every year, and announces that he's stepping down, that he's leaving the country, that he has jets warmed up on the runway, and he names the people that he is going to have come with him and his families, and Batista just gets out. We talked to Tony Perite about Fulgencio Batista walking away from Cuba and handing the island nation over to the revolutionaries. And Batista realized that he could keep fighting, you know, and, and, but in, he also realized that if things went awry, you know, if there was a little coup within his government, he would be arrested and maybe put on war crimes trials or, you know, you know, or shot, you know, become a, made an example of. So at a certain point, he just decided just like, get the hell out. And sort of like with his key man, the famous scene is in, is in the movie Godfather 2. Right. He's there and um, he's at his New Year's Eve party and he arrives. You know, he'd had a, the same New Year's Eve party every year and it's usually this huge festive thing, but he just sort of arrives and it's a very dour in a sort of event and he just like gets his closest confidants together and tells, tells them we're getting out of here and it's like you know and one of the guys is Ventura his sort of like police chief is like what, why didn't you tell me like you could have brought my wife and kids you know he says it's bad luck and so he has these three DC-10s there and just like gets the hell out and um, he goes to the Dominican Republic and others go to uh, Florida you know and, and it takes everyone by, by surprise it takes the Cubans by surprise it takes the army by surprise it takes Fidel by surprise you know some, some guy hears it on the radio from Miami and it's kind of like they go like Fidel he's left and so this is a very delicate moment where it's like so we you know we don't you know Fidel's aware that the military could come up with a new you know a new sort of government but he sort of like sends Che off to get, get Havana and he does this sort of parade through Cuba, uh, like this triumphant parade, gathering more and more supporters as he goes. And he takes a week going through and then by the time he arrives in Havana, there's thousands of them and all, you know, there's this massive Cuban and international support for it. stronghold in the wild Sierra Maestre Mountains, Cuba's Fidel Castro emerged triumphant after two years of guerrilla warfare against the Batista regime. The revolution that began with Castro a fugitive, practically alone, landing with 82 followers to be nearly wiped out by government forces, ended with the flight of dictator Fulgencio Batista and the entry into Havana of rebel forces to be acclaimed by the city. The forces of Castro's 26th of July movement, named for the anniversary of his first attack on the regime in 1953, have grown vastly, their power enlarged by captured and surrendered army weapons. Nearly two years of hit-and-run warfare, 
aimed at toppling Batista's government by paralyzing Cuba's economy, culminated in victory as 1958 ended. Castro met an all-out government offensive with a counterattack, and in the battle for the key rail center of Santa Clara, won the crucial victory. Batista resigned to prevent more bloodshed and fled the country. His departure touched off wild rejoicing in the capital as the first elements of rebel forces entered Havana. Six years of surface prosperity and government corruption, of repression and police brutality bred explosive discontent. Now Batista has fled. A new leader is on the scene, Fidel Castro. In many ways, an unknown quantity in his politics and policies, but certain to be dominant in Cuba's new era, just begun. Juan Santa Marina, our guest, the Latin American history professor at the University of Dayton. He grew up in Cuba. He's been back dozens of times. He's made movie documentaries about the island nation. We talked to him about Batista's decision to leave. And as sudden as it seemed to us, he said it was really somewhat inevitable. So when Batista leaves in, you know, the end of 1958, New Year's Eve 1958, what has been happening, and particularly in the last couple of months, is, is pretty dramatic advances by Fidel and Raul Castro and the other commandantes of the revolution. Pretty significant urban chaos as well, bombings, a whole variety of things, a, a devolution really of, of the situation in, in Cuba. Cubans, and I, I would tend to agree, would, would argue that when Cuban army forces fall to the guerrillas in Santa Clara in December of 1958. And when the, the, the revolutionaries take the, the railroad, that that clears the way for basically the, the revolutionary army to you know proceed to Havana. So at that moment in Santa Clara, the, the die is cast. There's, there's just sort of nothing left. It's sudden, but it's not sudden. I mean, it's, it's, it's been Certainly a year, 58 is certainly a year of, of um, urban chaos, of uh, killings by the government, of killings by revolutionaries, not only in terms of, of what's happening in the mountains with the revolutionaries, but also, you know, almost as importantly, or perhaps even more importantly, uh, the urban underground in the cities and the things that are taking place. So I think Batista, his decision to leave is really a, a culmination, a realization that that's pretty much the end. The, the U.S. had been making these kind of evaluations of what to do, and they're very careful and very cautious. And uh, ultimately, he does wind up in, in Spain um, and dies. Uh, now, his children, for the most part, wind up in the U.S., and, and uh, children, grandchildren grew up in the U.S., and they're still around. I met one of his granddaughters who worked for Procter & Gamble in Cincinnati, a uh, number of years ago. I don't think she does any longer, but she did it at, at that point. Mm -hmm. um, but they become, you know, part of the fabric of immigration to the U.S. Castro's an international celebrity. In America, Ed Selvin goes down to Havana the week after Batista leaves to interview. He just named himself Prime Minister of Cuba. The United States is one of the first countries that recognizes the new government of Fidel Castro. It seems like the United States and Cuba might be able to work something out, even though Castro is definitely going to be pushing out the mob. He's going to be pushing out some of these large companies that own so much of Cuba and give that back to the people. It's not clear that it's going to be a communist revolution. Such an important time, this, this first half of 1959. We'll get into that in the next episode. We talk with Juan Santa Marina about the newly freed Cuba and its role in the Cold War between the two superpowers, the United States and the Soviet Union. So one of the interesting parts about early 1959 and, and what will be the future of Cuba, 
really kind of largely depends on what is happening within the kind of bipolar world that exists, the U.S.-Soviet Union. The, the world that exists in 1959 is a bipolar world, Soviet-U.S. power. Everything is, is, if not determined by that, it's at least uh, pretty significantly influenced by that. And so from the American perspective, Cuba is kind of a sideline. It's not a central element in, in terms of American policymaking, um, but it is there and it's, it's significant. And the U.S. has had this kind of long historic role in Cuba. At the same time, the Soviets are looking at Cuba on the doorstep of the U.S. and as a you know, long kind of held part of the U.S. in, in some respects and seeing the revolution and seeing the, the kind of socialist elements of the revolution as an entree possibly into, you know, chipping American power, um, certainly in, in, in Latin America. And so this, the Soviet perspective, it's, it's a pretty brilliant one. Um, mess with the United States by messing with Cuba. William Morgan and his second front, they've helped to win the Cuban revolution. And as we close here today, we'll hear from William Morgan in these weeks after the revolution and after Batista leaves. William Morgan was an anti-communist. He's an American in the 1950s. He's fighting for democracy. But a lot of men from Castro's movement are communists. Maybe not Castro himself. William Morgan is worried about Cuba and what will be the result of his revolution. We hear him in an interview just when he's asked if this is going to be a communist country. Uh, we're beginning to hear, and you know what's coming, you know what I'm going to talk about. We're beginning to hear that there's communist influence around here. The Cuban people are not communists. Uh, they, would never, they would never go along with a communist government under any circumstances. Their history shows that over a period of time. They've always been pro-democratic very strongly. They're individualists. From Garfield's tomb to the Serpent Mound From the big cities to the river towns First in flight making history There's so many books you need to see I like reading And I like reading Tippecanoe and Tyler too From the Queen City to Lake Erie Blue Edison and a man on the moon so many books, which will we choose? I like reading I like reading Our book recommendation for part one of Ohio vs. Revolution is Cuba Libre, Shea, Fidel, and the Improbable Revolution that Changed World History by our guest, Tony Perrottet. Written in 2019, uh, Tony did an incredible amount of research, went to Cuba, multiple, multiple times. Uh, we talked to him about, you know, the difficulty of doing research in Cuba, the Communist Party, you know, are they giving him the information he wants, uh, and just some of the crazy stories that he found by going to the source. You know, because it's a huge process. You've got to have a special visa to go into the archives. You've got to do all this stuff. I mean, they were kind of helpful once, once they realized you were serious. You know, so, but I went back, you know, because I went back again and again, and they, I think they just decided they couldn't get rid of me, you know, so they would show me certain things. And a lot of it has actually been, you know, a lot of, of course, their letters and whatever have, you know, been published, you know, in Cuba. And there'll be like one copy at NYU or something, but, you know, like there's all this stuff that's been done there that just hasn't, you know, made it to the United States or really the outside world. 
So it, it, there's a lot of published stuff that you could get there, which is awesome. But in the archives, you know, I'd find the letters, I'd find photographs, I'd telegrams, and, you know, all sorts of weird stuff. And, and the diaries, you know, and that, that was probably the most awesome thing, getting, you know, Raul Castro's, you know, diary that he wrote while he was um, wandering around uh, in the mountains, you know, and uh, uh, a lot of very personal information that people had looked at, but they didn't really think it was that that interesting you know they, they had a great sense of humor like they came up with this you know this recipe that you know like a sausage gorilla style you know where they they have one hot dog and they dice it super finely and then cook <laughs> it in little rum and um and lemon you know and then i have one piece each and all these sort of weird little jokes that they had and there's just funny details about they find a, a dead you know, a pig and, and they cook it up, but they all get this ma massive diarrhea at the, at the same time. So the place where that happened would always be referred to as the hill. You know, there's just, just a bunch of young guys. And I think that's the thing that sort of, um, sort of fascinated me, guys and women, that, you know, like they're all sort of like, you know, early 20s, some are teenagers, you know, Fidel's 30, but he's, so he's the eldest. You can pick up Tony's book. There's a link in the show notes and we'll post it on our social media accounts as well. A really great book to read as an introduction to the Cuban Revolution. And again, Tony, just the way he writes, he's a really fun dude. And his writing, it comes through. Uh, again, Cuba Libre, uh, go buy that book. We'll be back with part two after the revolution and Fidel Castro takes power. We'll find the journey of William Morgan takes a strange turn. He saves the Cuban Revolution. Then he becomes an enemy of the Cuban Revolution at least Castro's revolution. We'll talk about events like the Bay of Pigs, how things come unraveled leading to the Cuban Missile Crisis, and this nearly 60 years of hatred between the American government and the Cuban government. But the intrigue and the betrayal and William Morgan becoming a double agent and the FBI and the CIA, and Fidel Castro's secret police, there's some strange turns ahead as we go to part two. It'll be out next week. We'll do next Tuesday, so you only got to wait a few more days for part two of episode eight, Ohio vs. Revolution. We'll see you then. I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. Alright, you think that was good enough? I, I hope so, man. I'm tired. <laughs> who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? Right. I, I, I've never done it. <laughs> so, no, right.